Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm the Executive Vice President of Cato, David Bowes, and I am pleased that this is my first opportunity to uh, be up here on the dais in the new Hayek Auditorium. Beautiful place. We love having this new expanded building and this gorgeous auditorium. Some of you who have been in the auditorium before may notice that we have upgraded the seats from economy class to business class. <laughs> Lots more leg room and, and seat room now. Um, so I hope Professor Hayek would appreciate that sign of, uh, you know, the advance of technology and comfort and uh, economic progress. Margaret Thatcher came to be associated with the phrase, there is no alternative, meaning that there is no alternative in the modern world to economic liberalism and globalization. So one might think then that the question, why capitalism, answers itself, because there is no alternative to capitalism. Now, there are, of course, alternatives There are, of course, alternatives ranging from communism and national socialism to theocracy and slavery, and there are different forms of capitalism. But I would argue that if you want progress, abundance, human rights, and the rule of law, there is no alternative to organizing human affairs, economic affairs, on the basis of several property and market exchange. There was a time when half the world rejected capitalism and leading intellectuals even in the free world worried that the centrally planned economies would obviously outcompete the capitalist countries and that convergence on some sort of half capitalist, half socialist model was the wave of the future. That analysis was mistaken. And more recently, there were claims that the financial crisis of 2008 and continuing um, heralded the end of libertarianism or even the end of American capitalism. And I think those analyses will also prove to be mistaken. But I will leave it to our distinguished speakers to explore those questions more fully. I'll introduce both of our speakers and then turn the podium over to our author today. I remember at one of our Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty dinners, Ed Crane asked Milton Friedman if it bothered him that he had never received the Milton Friedman Prize. Well, our speaker today doesn't have that concern because Alan H. Meltzer is the Alan H. Meltzer Professor of Political Economy at Carnegie Mellon University. And those will be big shoes to fill when he retires. One of the nation's most distinguished economists, indeed a distinguished fellow of the American Economic Association and a distinguished visiting scholar of the Hoover Institution. He is the author of many books over 50 years, including uh, perhaps most notably a two-volume, although I think it's really three volumes, History of the Federal Reserve from the University of Chicago Press. This book, Why Capitalism, may be his smallest book on his biggest subject. After uh, Professor Meltzer talks, we'll hear from John Mueller, who uh, has held for some years the Woody Hayes Chair of National Security Studies in the Mershon Center and is Professor of Political Science, now a senior research scholar at Ohio State University. He has written many books. They range from 
atomic obsession, nuclear alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda, and retreat from doomsday, the obsolescence of major war, to Astaire dancing. Yes, that's about Fred Astaire and his dance. But perhaps the most relevant for our conversation today is a book called Capitalism, Democracy, and Ralph's Pretty Good Grocery. And of course, we're most proud of the fact that he is now a senior fellow of the Cato Institute. So for now, welcome the author of Why Capitalism, Alan Meltzer. Thank you, David. It's very nice to be here in one of the inaugural lectures at the Hayek Auditorium. Students in my capitalism class at Carnegie Mellon read a large part of Hayek's most outstanding work, The Constitution of Liberty. <clears throat> I usually start these programs by saying, telling you why I happen to write Why Capitalism Now? Uh, and there was really, I've been teaching a course called Capitalism for 25 years to the MBA students at Carnegie Mellon. <clears throat> it's a very popular elective. And it gets, uh, it gets a lot of uh, students who come from overseas, especially to uh, see what I think about capitalism. <clears throat> In any case, uh, that isn't the reason for writing the book, but that gave me a lot of the material on which the book was quickly written. The, the reason for writing the book was that the New York Times ran a series of articles in the fall of 2008 called The End of Capitalism, The End of American Capitalism. And since I'm on the, <coughs> the tickler for a great many journalists all around the world and get a lot of calls, I got six calls about <coughs> the end of capitalism that usually started out by saying, Professor, do you think this is the end of capitalism? And I usually take the questions, even if I think they're not serious, I treat them seriously. But the sixth one was one too many, I guess. Uh, it was from a woman <clears throat> in Hamburg at the big German newspaper called Die Zeit. And she said, the usual start, Professor, do you think this is the end of capitalism? And I said, you know, I've been talking to journalists for about 40 years. That's the most stupid question I've been asked. So <clears throat> she hung up. She didn't wait to hear why I thought it was a stupid question. But I thought it was a stupid question because <clears throat> anyone with a mind that was open could see that capitalism spread from over the centuries from Western Europe and North America and Australia to uh, most of the rest of the world. There are no uh, very few remaining non-capitalist countries or at least non partially capitalist countries, the state capitalism, there's different kinds of capitalism. And as I'll say in a few moments, that's one of its strengths. But <clears throat> the fact that there were so few countries that claimed to be socialist or social uh, <clears throat> or communist now, there are Cuba, which is in a slow transition away from, from uh, communism and North Korea, where the people eat the bark of trees and grass uh, <clears throat> because they are, have a feudal dynasty and uh, that is more miserable than almost any feudal society which we know. <clears throat> Hardly a picture to attract followers. But the strengths of capitalism 
uh, not just that, that they're <coughs> that they provide things that socialist or other systems have not provided. The strengths of capitalism are that they're the only society that mankind has known that <coughs> or has developed that has produced both growth and freedom. They also have the virtue that they adopt. That's a very important advantage. They adopt to the culture in which they are. Capitalism differs all over the world. Communism was a monolithic system. You had to do things according to however the <coughs> leaders thought Marx would have done them or Lenin might have done them. Religious, religious countries, religious orthodoxies are also rigid. <coughs> there is a right way and a wrong way, and the people who do things the wrong way end up in being killed or imprisoned or tortured. <coughs> Capitalism doesn't do that, whatever the society. So capitalism in Japan is different from capitalism in Brazil, is different from capitalism in China, which is mostly state capitalism, is different from capitalism in America, and so on. That is, it adapts to the culture in which it's in. That's a great strength because it builds on the strengths that come from the various cultures. <clears throat> now, what makes capitalism capital? Capitalism. What makes capitalism capitalism is that people own the private means of production to the very largest extent. And that is fostered and depends a great deal on the presence of something like the rule of law. Capitalism, it is a strength when there is a rule of law. Why are those two things so important? <clears throat> because capitalism gives the ownership of private capital gives people helps people to maintain their freedom. You can do more of the things that you want to do if you are independent enough to own your own capital, including human capital. That's something which capitalism develops, and that's one of, the, one of its great strengths. It provides freedom, growth, both at the same time. No other system has, has been able to provide both freedom and growth and most of them have not been able to provide either freedom or growth. <clears throat> so that's a great advantage, and my book develops that. It also develops from the point that capitalism is not a perfect system. There are no perfect systems, in my opinion. There are lots of utopias written at one point in my career. I taught a course to undergraduates called uh, on utopia, and we read a lot of the utopian books. <clears throat> There, you know, the, you have to ask yourself as you read those things, where did this ever happen? And the answer is, it never happened anywhere, and if it did, it didn't last. <clears throat> and the reason is because, as Immanuel Kant, who runs through the whole of my short book, Immanuel Kant taught us that, <clears throat> in a phrase that he used, From timbers as crooked as those from which man is made, you do not get straight boards. In other words, people are not perfect. That's the theme of medieval Christianity, nicely expressed by Kant. <clears throat> it is the idea that people are imperfect. So it, the, the faults that are associated with 
political systems are not the faults of the systems as much as they are the faults of the individuals who run the system. And because capitalism disperses power, those faults are less prevalent. They're not absent, but they're less prevalent in capitalist systems because people, democratic capitalisms especially, people can express their divergent views, and they do. So sometimes <clears throat> they elect people who are in favor of more redistribution, and sometimes they elect people who are in favor of more growth. And years ago, Scott Richard and I <clears throat> developed a model in which people could vote as well as go to the market. And uh, it's been a very widely used model in the political science and economics and political economy literature. Uh, <clears throat> and what it says is that you get the outcome sometimes one way, sometimes the other, that if you have a successful run, as we did, for example, during the Reagan and early and first Bush years, people vote <clears throat> for continuing the policies of growth, but growth spreads the income distribution. And <clears throat> as Hayek pointed out to us long ago, <clears throat> it spreads the income distribution, and the result will be that you get pressures for more income redistribution and less emphasis on growth. And <clears throat> you can see that in the current politics, but you can see it in almost every election that we've had uh, <clears throat> in the 20th century. Sometimes they vote for growth, sometimes for, <clears throat> for redistribution. But my book goes beyond that to talk about some of the things which are <clears throat> related. <clears throat> one <clears throat> that I like to remind people about is one that seems to have been lost in the dustbin of history. And that is that from 1789 to 1930, this country, the United States, ran budget surpluses, government budget surpluses in two-thirds of the non-war years. Wars, of course, were, had big deficits, but then they were paid down. And uh, <clears throat> that lasted until 1930. Since 1930, the government has grown in size from about 3 or 4% of GDP, federal government, to somewhere around 24, 25% of GDP currently. And, <clears throat> and the deficits have grown along with them. There have only been two presidents during that period that produced more than one year of budget deficits, and very most of the presidents never produced a budget deficit, a budget surplus. The two presidents who produced budget surpluses back to back were President, Eisen, excuse me, President Eisenhower and Clinton. Uh, <clears throat> both of them were periods of growth, prosperity, ended in recessions in the Eisenhower years. When the recession came, he ran a large budget deficit, which was eliminated by the 1960s. Some of you may remember that when uh, <clears throat> that Arthur Burns, who was a counselor to the president uh, officially in the beginning and unofficially later, was approached by President Nixon, uh, later President Nixon at that time, Vice President Nixon, 
He warned Pre Vice President Nixon there was going to be a recession in 1960. He turned out to be right. Nixon always blamed that recession on for the reason why he lost the election to Kennedy. And he was a great admirer of Burns. And in the 1970s, he would stroke Burns. Burns would come. The independent chairman of the Federal Reserve would come to meetings at the White House. He would tell the president or <clears throat> what was on his mind. The president would stroke him and tell him what a great man he was and how smart he was and how and then he would say, and you're not going to do in 1971, 72, what happened in 1960. You're not going to have another recession for me. You're going to help to get me elected by printing up a lot of money. And uh, <clears throat> Burns, to his credit, never quite said, yes, I will. But he got as close to that as he could by saying, I am not McChesney Martin. In any case, he did what the president wanted, but he didn't. He had a board of advisors. He was later pilloried for having done that. The people who pilloried him were mostly those people in the Congress who strongly supported what he was doing at the time he was doing it and blamed him later for the inflation that followed. In any case, in my book, I describe him as a different book than the one we're talking about today. I describe him as having had a board, all of whom were members appointed by Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, who were hardly friendly toward President Nixon and who did what they did because they, like the present Federal Reserve, think that by producing an inflation now, they're going to do something about unemployment. Uh, <clears throat> My book also talks a great deal about why the budget has grown. I'm only going to take one of those points uh, to talk about the fact that President Eisenhower, who certainly knew something about that, always warned the United States that we were not the policemen of the world. We have since become the policemen of the world. And one of the things that I like to point out about that is that it representative of a great part of the problems of federal, the federal government. They rarely have a long-term vision of where it is that they're going. I've read more Federal Reserve minutes, perhaps, than any human being ever ought to read. And uh, <clears throat> you can see, almost without exception, over almost about 100 years of Federal Reserve history and about 80 years of Federal Reserve minutes of transcripts, you hardly ever see a discussion that says that if we do this today, where will we be a year from now? There just simply are very few, if any, of those discussions in most years. They work on the things that they can't do much about, which are the near term. They neglect the things that they can do something about, which are the longer term. <clears throat> Same thing is true about the military problems in the United States. We don't have a strategy as to what is in America's interest to intervene. We get pushed around by interest groups and the media who talk about the suffering that occurs here, there, and everywhere. And uh, so we have been involved in fighting wars in Somalia and other places that <clears throat> have very little to do with American interests. We don't have a strategy for doing that. And in my opinion, that's one of the major failures of big government as we practice it here. I'll close that by saying, uh, telling a little story that I learned from reading 
<clears throat> Henry Kissinger's recent book called On China. <clears throat> when he went to Beijing for the first time and met with Mao Zedong, and the discussion after it turned out that he had been there was all about how it was going to be impossible for the United States and China to come together because of Taiwan and because of the differences between us and the Chinese about Taiwan. And that's what the media talked about for the most part, endlessly, as the media is inclined to do. So Kissinger had already asked Mao Zedong, what about Taiwan? And Mao Zedong's answer was, in 100 years, it will be ours. I have bigger problems at the moment. The bigger problem was he had 2 million Russian troops on his northern border. So he had a strong reason for making an accommodation for the only, the only power that could give him some support against the Soviets at the time. And uh, so it was in our interest to get involved with him. It was in his interest to get involved with us. And uh, that's a wonderful example of an old statement among the political scientists that countries do not have friends or permanent friends. They have permanent interests. I'll stop there and hear what people, what someone has to say about what I have written. Okay, thank you. Very, very nice to be here. Uh, I very much enjoyed the book, um, and I'd like to just make sort of three uh, general points uh, that uh, sort of struck me as uh, extensions or uh, additional uh, ideas to lay on the table. Uh, some of this can be fairly optimistic, I'm afraid, uh, but uh, the secret of being an optimist is to have low standards, and um, you'll, see, you'll see that in application here. I'd like to, uh, first of all, talk about uh, the sort of what's happened over the last 20 or 25 years, uh, uh, very much in line with what Alan said and also what David was saying. Um, in, it was 1989 that Francis Fukuyama wrote his famous essay called The End of History. And what he argued at that time, the title was, uh, came out of Hegel and therefore probably was somewhat misleading, uh, but basically he argued that there had been the, the triumph of liberalism or maybe libertarianism in the sense that uh, all the opposition, the coherent opposition, both uh, ideological opposition, both to democracy, liberal democracy, and market economies had basically uh, ended. Um, and I think that uh, has proven to be fairly, uh, fairly prescient. Uh, what's happened since that time we've, is that we've had uh, a massive improvement, as Alan was talking about, uh, in, in, uh, in free market capitalism around the world and also a major uh, increase in democracy. Um, and uh, this is not, by no means obvious at the time in many respects. And many liberals and libertarians, liberal, free market liberals and Demo democratic liberals have been uh, quite pessimistic about the prospects at various times. Uh, uh, Daniel Plant Patrick Moynihan in 1975 suggested that uh, democracy was useful in a few weird countries like the United States and parts of Europe, but is basically doomed overall. Um, and in terms of one of the major areas of, that have changed since, since that time, uh, the expansion of free trade, uh, many, uh, many libertarians or liberals or you know, whatever, free market liberals, um, were pretty pessimistic themselves. Uh, George Stigler, for example, and, and Milton Friedman and others also, and James Buchanan basically agreed with this, uh, found that the idea of getting free trade really moving uh, was hopeless with democracy. 
Uh, because what would happen would be the argument, perfectly reasonable argument, is that you, the people who are going to lose their jobs to free trade know who they are, and the people who don't know, the, uh, the people who are going to gain jobs, which is almost certainly going to be a bigger number, uh, don't know who they are, and then, therefore the people who are going to lose the jobs are going to make the uh, democracy work to their disadvantage. So uh, Stigler, for example, in 1975 said, free trade is unattainable without a fundamental restructuring of the political system. And that proved to be unduly pessimistic, obviously. Uh, free trade is not exactly wildly uh, uh, free, uh, but it certainly expanded enormously in that period of time and certainly uh, since the end of the Cold War. Um, so, um, uh, and also, as, as, as uh, just sort of re reflecting on what David said, uh, we've had, and also to degree what um, uh, Alan is saying about the, you know, uh, is capitalism doomed? That question really hasn't really come up that much. Uh, it makes, uh, I can see why journalists keep pestering Alan about that, because if he said, yeah, it's doomed, that would make a really great story. Uh, but there isn't really much substance behind it, and it basically is an absurd statement. Uh, we've had this crunch, uh, and what's really impressive is we've had this crunch recently, and also, you know, major economic problem, particularly in East Asia, in the late 1990s. And unlike the situation in the Depression of the 30s, the argument was not, uh, uh, is capitalism doomed? In other words, can we, we should replace it with a communism or a controlled socialism or something. But basically, how can we make capitalism work in, in this system? Uh, there's a lot of uh, ideas about how to do that, but they're all basically within capitalist framework. So the point is, no one in the recent years has been saying we should get rid of capitalism. There's problems with it. Maybe people are dishonest in some area and so forth, need more regulation, less regulation, whatever. But uh, working within that framework is there. So it seems to me that basically what we've kept is uh, a fair amount of um, uh, continuity in, in that respect. Uh, trade has expanded. And, and the whole old ideas of not only communism, but also autarky and uh, dependencia, is known in Latin America, about basically closing yourself off from the world and basically try to be uh, uh, develop internally what Adam Smith was battling in merc mercantilism uh, is basically gone and seems to be gone forever. Uh, Fukuyama argued that there'd be sort of two, art, two possible ideologies that could replace, uh, that, that could challenge in the future now that communism was dead. Uh, one was uh, nationalism, and there was a flurry, obviously, of nationalist issues, uh, particularly with the wars in Yugoslavia in the 1990s, but that seems to have faded away. And the other thing he talk, talked about was fundamentalist uh, religion, uh, and uh, with 9-11 and so forth, that argument sort of percolated back uh, again, but has sort of faded away. Um, so it, it's, looking, it's looking pretty good uh, for, for the future, it seems to me. Uh, and I also want to stress how important it was. Um, uh, what we went through in the 90s in particular was uh, countries that had never known democracy or known it very fleetingly uh, throughout Eastern Europe and, and the former Soviet Union, um, who, who were in the process of uh, moving from a controlled economy uh, to a free economy in some way or other, and also adopting democracy. And by and large, that's been really remarkably successful. And it, but for a while there, it was very questionable whether they would, quote, make it or not. Uh, but they basically have moved uh, solidly in that direction, show no signs of reversal. In addition, there were lots of, lots of countries that became democracies in Latin America and East Asia, uh, then, of course, with the, the, the uh, former Soviet Union and uh, Eastern Europe. And there was, there was a lot of political scientists anticipating that, well, there'd be backsliding and so forth. And although there, there, there has been in some places, it's been remarkably small compared to the number of countries that moved in that direction. Uh, essentially, there's almost nothing in the way in the, in the world anymore of, of real tyrannies. Um, I, I mean, there are a few places like North Korea, uh, Burma, even Burma, 
is liberalizing, um, and uh, uh, a few other places here and there. But it's really hard. You know, Latin America used to be wall-to-wall tyrants. Uh, with, a, with remarkably few exceptions, and uh, the, the basic isn't there. There's a lot of bad governments and tyrannical type governments, but real uh, hard-nosed tyrants of the sort that we've had for, throughout all of history are, are very limited. Um, okay, let me make t- uh, two other points. Uh, one is I'd like to take slight issue uh, with the implication, at least, of one thing in uh, Alan's book, which he didn't mention, which is he talks about law giving an, an incentive for honesty and fair dealing. And what I'd like to argue is that in many respects, capitalism does that, but it's basically an innovation. Uh, What happens is that um, uh, honesty and fair dealing and also civility in business uh, tends to uh, uh, be good for the bottom line. Um, And this has been really uh, uh, a, uh, and essentially what happens is once capitalists understand that, uh, and it took a while to do so, uh, they uh, then, after they've basically become essentially fair dealing and essentially honest and civil, uh, then you can have laws that then help with the relatively small number of people uh, who, are, uh, who, who don't fall in, into that category. Um, but it was basically an innovation for, for centuries, millennia basically. It's very hard to find people who are systematically saying um, uh, honesty is the best policy, it's also the most profitable. In other words, giving an economic reason for honesty, not simply a moral reason for honesty. Uh, the same with fair dealing. And, uh, uh, and uh, much of that came only in the 19th century, and I think it was basically an innovation. A few people basically saw that it uh, was profitable, uh, then they then acted that way. In other words, they started to be civil to their customers, uh, and the customers kept coming back. And other companies said, well, we can be civil to our customers as well. Either they didn't do that, in which case they would go out of business because they'd be outcompeted. In other words, there is an economic advantage to having customers constantly come back, um, um, or, they, or they did modify and, and, join, the, and join the pack. Um, if, uh, but if you go back to even the 18th century, you can find lots of things like this. Um, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, people arguing uh, very strongly that um, uh, the uh, that uh, uh, that uh, the, the most productive workers are ones that are the least happy. Uh, that you have to use the whip basically to get people to work, uh, or you can get arguments that um, uh, that, uh, that Napoleon said that. Uh, that uh, honesty, uh, if you find an honest man, he can't, you have a rich man, he can't possibly be honest. The Quakers who were honest for religious reasons did very well in business and everybody said, well, they must be hypocrites because they couldn't possibly be honest. But beginning basically in the 19th century, that changed. One of the uh, leaders of that was P.T. Barnum, uh, oddly enough, um, who wrote, as far as I can see, the first time anybody has systematically sort of displayed the notion that honesty, fair dealing, and civility are good for business in a systematic way. He said things like, the most difficult thing to make in life is to make money dishonestly. No man can be disclosed without soon being found out. And then his lack of discipline, when his lack of principle is discovered, everybody else will stop doing business with him. So that even as a matter of selfishness, uh, honesty is the best policy. In terms of sharp bargaining, he said men who drive sharp bargains with their customers, acting as, ever, if, acting as if they never expected to see them again, uh, will not be mistaken. And he said politeness and civility are the best capital ever invested in business. He wrote that. He never said, by the way, a sucker, there's a sucker born every minute. He said things like this in the 1860s. And that's one of the earliest expressions of this. You can find it now constantly, of course, in business manuals, Peter Drucker and so forth. Uh, but it was, it was basically an innovation. 
Uh, and during the 20th century, I turned 19th century, uh, you, fi you find a fair amount of indication that that was happening. For example, Richard Tilley, the brother of Charles, said, uh, noticed that business activities were expanding enormously in the 19th century, um, but there was no rise in the number of complaints about breaches of contract or fraud. Uh, people were realizing, basically taking a long-term perspective, if I'm honest and people trust me, they'll trust me later on. And so that, uh, did, not that there weren't nev never any crooks, not that there aren't any crooks now, uh, but, but the, the general move was in, in that direction. Alfred Marshall, the great uh, economic historian, wrote in 1890, uh, he was right in the middle of this change, and he said that the opportunities for knavery are certainly more numerous than they were. Uh, but there's no, but uh, there's no reason for thinking that men avail themselves in a larger proportion of such opportunities as, as they as they used to. On the contrary, modern methods of trade imply habits of trust of trustfulness on the one side and power of resisting temptation and uh, to dishonesty on in the other. In other words, he could. He could see this happening, this is growth of honesty, despite the fact that there was a, many more opportunities to, to cheat because the economy was building, but the economy is building because you could trust each other and so forth. So it seems to me what was mainly happening in that period of time uh, was uh, the, this massive growth that was coming from this, uh, this change of business practices. Uh, in other words, uh, you could do business. Uh, if you have a lot of difficulty doing business because people are dishonest and unfair, what you tend to do is not do business. That's a solution. I mean, you have to buy bread and stuff, uh, but you just, don't, you just don't interact with the market as much as you would. If basically you go into a store and people treat you civilly and they don't cheat you and they don't shortchange you, which were common practices, um, uh, then you're more likely to do it and therefore ec economic activity extends. Um, okay, the, um, let me include, conclude the third point. Um, which is very much along the line of what Alan's talking about. He mentioned it quite a few times here, uh, just today, and it's, it's, it runs throughout the book, uh, about uh, the, lack, the, the, the idea of not being utopian. Um, I call it sort of utopia, sort of the optimal illusion. Um, uh, the idea is that both democracy and capitalism work with people as they are. Uh, they don't require people uh, very often to rise above the selfishness and ignorance with which they have been so... Uh, richly endowed by their creator. You can just be real people. If you, you, can, you can be acquisitive and be greedy and do it in an effective manner. And you're, in the case of democracy, you're free to complain. Um, but the, uh, uh, one of the problems on this is, uh, that potentially problems at least, um, is that um, it doesn't necessarily um, uh, get everything you want. And uh, uh, David mentioned a book I did in which I talked about Ralph's Pretty Good Grocery. And the argument there, uh, the, uh, the Ralph's Pretty Good Grocery was a uh, fictitious grocery store in fictitious Lake Wobogon uh, invented by Garrison Keillor. And it had a slogan. The slogan was, if you can't find it at Ralph's, you can probably get along without it. And, and I've always liked it sort of intensely anti-romantic uh, uh, kind of thing. And essentially that you can't get certain things with that, and that's what people, and I apply that to democracy and capitalism. Essentially, there's certain things you can't get with democracy and capitalism, but you can probably get along without them. Um, to gain, obviously, the benefits of this, which is the freedoms that come with both those institutions, and of course the economic growth and prosperity that uh, has, as, as Alan has pointed out uh, very cogently, uh, does accompany them, uh, particularly capitalism. Um, and uh, so basically what, what happens is that uh, there's certain things you can't get. One of the things you can't get is equality of, uh, equality of result. You can leave people to be equally 
uh, leave them opened for their, for their uh, equally to uh, advance themselves in both those systems, but some are going to do better than others, and you don't get equality of result. Um, you also don't get orderliness or certainty. Uh, both democracy and capitalism are pretty disorderly, creative destruction. Uh, they're messy, uh, and people in democracy are constantly, it irritates me all the time, are constantly allowed to say things which I disagree with. I mean, you just have to live with that. Um, and uh, so there's not, if you really want calm and total consensus, you will never get it with those two systems. Um, and the third thing, going back to Fukuyama, um, he talks about liberalism, meaning democracy and capitalism, and the emptiness at their core. Uh, that is to say, there's somewhat, there's to a degree, there's no there there. Uh, to you, uh, quote Daniel Jurgen, it does, uh, capitalism and democracy do not satisfy the yearning in the human soul for some higher meaning beyond materialism. They do a lot for you. They give you a lot of uh, increased, uh, uh, they, give, they, they, they help to expand, they make your life more interesting in the sense of, 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 uh, of being free. Uh, they also, it, with prosperity, they make your life more comfortable and they also increase your life expectancy. Uh, but what they don't do necessarily um, is, um, is uh, 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 fulfill some of these in internal needs. If you want them, you can't get them at Ralph's Pretty Good Grocery. Uh, you have to look someplace else. Um, okay, finally, just one uh, final thing, which also relates very much to what Alan is saying, which is about people being, um, uh, it sort of puzzles me uh, in some respects. Uh, democracy and capitalism seem to work very well, not only when people aren't any better than they actually are, are uh, but when they don't even understand what's going on. Uh, you have to have some guiding mind someplace, probably. Uh, but uh, there's a poll, for example, in 1990. This is when the Soviet Union still existed, and they interviewed people in New York City, which is, of course, the, according to the Marxists at least, the center of international capitalism. And they also interviewed people in Moscow, at that time still part of the Soviet Union, which was the center of international communism, though things were beginning to change. Um, and what they found was that there was no difference between New Yorkers and Moscovites uh, in, in the phrase, do you think it's unfair to raise prices merely because demand increases? And they found, if anything, New Yorkers were less tolerant of economic inequality, more distrustful of speculators, and less appreciative of material incentives. Uh, so you can get basically people disagree with the system, but it happens anyway, and they're part of it, and uh, uh, things progress. Finally on that would be with democracy. Um, what we have, uh, democracy, it seems to me, is different from authoritarianism, mainly uh, not in freedom of speech so much, because you can have soft, what they often call soft authoritarian regimes, in which you have a fair amount of freedom of speech. It's frequently called freedom of conversation. You can say things in the family, you can sometimes say it on the bus and in the pub, which are really hostile to the government, no great problem. You also have a certain amount of freedom of the press, so the press keeps careful. Uh, it, can it, can, it can be pretty critical of the government in various ways, but they can't go too far. What really is different in democracies is not only can you say that stuff, but you can organize. And so consequently, the key thing that uh, separates authoritarianism, at least soft authoritarianism, from democracy is the ability not only to speak, but also to organize yourself to petition the government for redress. Uh, 
Uh, you can walk in with your petition to your congressman and say, you know, will you please do that? You can also walk in and say, I represent 100,000 people in the labor union or a, a major committee of, uh, of uh, businesses and so forth in your district, and, and now will you listen to me? And obviously the organized uh, development is likely to be much more effective. Um, so essentially what I'm saying ultimately is the whole point of democracy is special interests. Not, they often have bad interests in terms of overall interests of the country, but, they, but the point is that they're pursuing spe specific interests um, and uh, uh, in, a, in a free and orderly and, of course, peaceful manner. That's, that's crucial, the peaceful part. Uh, but uh, we still have almost universal rejection of the idea of special interests. They're bad, evil sorts of things. So what's happening is democracy, at least in my view, is flourishing despite the fact that Democrats basically continuously referred to one of the, the key issues, the uh, special interests are democracy, uh, as if it were a form of corruption. Nonetheless, democracy keeps going. So uh, uh, what you can have is both capitalism and democracy flourishing quite well when the people who are their constituents and actually making it work uh, don't really understand the phenomenon themselves. Okay, thanks very much.